When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad. And tonight we are making a little uh, change, a little addition to the show. Uh, we've brought on uh, a new member of the team. Uh, I'd like to introduce my friend, Rebecca Lindland. Rebecca, hello. Sam, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Thank you for uh, for taking the time to to chat with Dan and, my, and myself. Um, you know, we've we've been wanting to get uh, another voice, a different voice with a, di- a different perspective uh, on the show. You know, so it's not just uh, these these two uh, cranky old guys. I was going to say two <laughs> cranky dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've, I've known you for more than a decade, but, yes. you know, I think, um, you know, so there's I'm sure there are some people that are listening to this that have seen your face on TV and and heard your voice on radio and, and other places. But for those that are not familiar with Rebecca Lindland, why don't we start off with a little bit of who is Rebecca Lindland? So I am a lifelong automotive enthusiast. I really don't remember a time I didn't know every car on the road. And I didn't understand how other people didn't know every car on the road. (laughs) (laughs) It's a strange thing. I have five older brothers. Uh, Some of them are um, more into cars than others. But um, as the youngest of eight, I don't know, it just kind of which is always something that I, I knew every car on the road. And so I, I was in and out of the industry on and off through my twenties. And finally, um, in my, in my early thirties, I decided 
I have to get my act together and, and figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I went to work for Allied Signal, uh, which is now Honeywell, and forecasting Bendix breaks. And I did that for a few years. And then I uh, saw a job for Standard & Poor's and went to work for S&P forecasting the whole car. And eventually my division was sold off and it went through several iterations, became uh, what is now uh, IHS Market. And although I didn't work there at that point, I left in 2013. Uh, and then I went to Saudi Arabia for, for almost three years to do work on basically adoption rates of alternative fuel vehicles. So studying people um, who buy electric vehicles and also looking at people who could have bought an electric vehicle, but did not so, for a variety of reasons. Saudi so Arabia fault, but- seems like a weird place to be doing that, <laughs> given the fact that they they have oil and lots of it. So this is interesting, Dan, and it's a very common question. <laughs> but the reason that Saudi Arabia um, and all of the Middle East really is so interested in electric vehicles is because you're absolutely right. All they have is oil Mm. and they actually need to conserve it Uh, by some estimates, including Chatham House. If Saudi Arabia continues to use oil at its current rate, they would become a net oil importer by 2030. Wow. Which is around the corner. I mean, we're ready to just like bake off all our shale and give them the oil here, apparently. I mean, it really it's shocking. So for every barrel of oil they use domestically, it's a barrel of oil that they don't sell. Yeah. And so they have to start looking at conservation. They have to start looking at at getting more fuel efficient uh, vehicles on the road. They're actually the market's actually quite similar to ours in at, at well now it's it's probably different but at the time that I lived there uh, through the end of just about the end of 15, it was about half car, half truck, but the trucks were all SUVs and traditional truck based SUVs, you know, the, the big giant suburbans and, and navigators and escalates and such. Uh, but they have a lot of four cylinder engine vehicles. So there's not as much room for improvement when it comes to fuel economy on the car side as we had. You know, we went from eight cylinder to six cylinder to four cylinder. Um, and there's not as much use of crossovers because they do a lot of desert driving. Right. And that's a big part of their culture. So they actually need the off-roading capabilities that an all-wheel drive or, or, or a, a, a rear-wheel drive with a four-wheel drive will give you. So it's a very interesting market to study for sure. Yeah. Uh, and and But really, they, they've got to conserve is the bottom line. Well, so the other thing they have a lot of, not to completely derail us, I just find it pretty fascinating. Yeah, sorry. Is, <laughs> uh, they have a lot of desert and a lot of sunshine. So is solar something that they have invested in? Solar is somebody that, something that they've invested in. So I was working for King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, otherwise known as CAPSARC, and we had one of the largest solar fields in Saudi Arabia. Uh, some of our sister properties, like King Abdullah uh, University for Science and Technology, ha- also had huge solar fields. The problem is the dust and how to clean them. So one of the fields, uh, not ours, but one of another field, they went to clean them with dust cleaning things and they scratched them. 
and yeah, the that, efficiency that is a problem when you're surrounded by sand. Mm-hmm. It is a problem when you are surrounded by sand. <laughs> so solar is a definite option. Um, it's just that they've got to learn how to manage the environment with which they put those solar panels. What That's about wind? Fascinating. Yeah, wind. Wind must be good too. You get the the, the wind coming across the desert, right? Like. I believe it's the lack of consistency in the wind that's the yeah. issue. So you'll get it's almost you know you'll get really really windy days but then other days you really won't have much. And really, you know, in Riyadh half the year the climate is very much like San Diego where it's very obviously very low humidity, um beautiful sunshine in the 70s. I mean it's gorgeous. And then of course the other half of the year, you know, you're lucky if it gets below 90 at 5 a.m. So it's just the ex- it's the extremes and trying to manage those extremes. Um, the bottom line really is that they've got to look at better insulating their houses and building smaller houses and driving more efficient cars. And they're not really very good at any of those things. Neither are we. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's what happens when the oil's too cheap. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, and funny story, a friend of mine had a, had a Chrysler town and country over there, and we went, uh, the first time I went shopping, we went to a market, and on the way back, he had to get gas, and I said, oh, hey, you know, Sham, do you want some gas money? And he he burst out laughing. He spent, he spent a lot of the time in the States, and he starts laughing, and he goes, that's a very nice offer. He goes, it's about, I think it was $12 to fill up his, his town and country. <laughs> so... Yeah. yeah, so he didn't need the gas money. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. All right. <laughs> so once I got back, then I went to work for uh, Kelly Blue Book and, uh, and recently left there at the beginning of January. So now I'm independent. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and where, where, where are you uh, jo- calling in from? Are you in the part of the frozen tundra or are you? I am based in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in Southern Connecticut, and right now, as we speak, it's 11 degrees. It was zero this morning. So well, it was quite balmy yes. compared to here. Yeah, yeah it was. It was <laughs> exactly. So, it, it was minus 16 when I got up this morning. Oh, you see, so I'm here in uh, Central Massachusetts, in, in the Boston area as well, but. Uh, I can't afford anything closer to the city. So I'm in central Massachusetts and uh, it was like, they canceled school for a bunch of the schools around here. And it's like, these people are soft. It was like zero degrees. It's like, it's cold. (laughs) Yes. But like, that's normal cold. Like it it happens. And it, I stepped stepped out of the house for the first time in two days today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I can understand. Like you guys had, had minus like when it gets minus 10 or like, that gets, but it's it's cold and it's also kind of arid right now. So like I got yes. out of the car when I got home and I didn't have the coat on and like the, if it were actually warmer and and more humid, I would have felt colder. So I don't know. so there was a great stat that I saw. I believe it was from Nora Naughton uh, in Detroit, one of the great reporters in Detroit, and she said that General Motors had the highest percentage of of remote starts <laughs> in the last two days so here it is so um the what, top is that five like using their using their app 
Yes. The top five states for remote start requests over the last two days were from Michigan, Illinois, New York, Ohio, and Minnesota. That makes sense. I'm surprised right? there weren't I'm surprised there weren't more in Wisconsin too. I know. I know, but I thought that was great. I'm slightly uh, alarmed that they know that. Well, <laughs> well if if they're if you know, because you you can do uh, remote start using the uh, OnStar Remote Link app. Yeah. So th- so they have the data, you know, of what kinds of requests come through. You know, you can, and it's pretty easy to to uh, to figure that out. Um, you know, because if if you're using the app, you know, then it's going to OnStar's uh, control center, and then it sends the signal to the car to start. Yeah. Well, I guess it's important as the app maker to know the features that are getting used and not used. And then if they're not getting used, why are they not getting used? Yeah. So, okay. Well, I'll take the tinfoil out of my hat on that one. But <laughs> still a little bit like, I, I remember what starts from the fob. I hope nobody, but me in the car. know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure it's all aggregated for privacy. Oh, of course. Yes, of course. Sure. Because, <laughs> and you know, I'm sure it's completely secure and nobody would ever be able to find a way to get that information. Never. Never no. ever. <laughs> yeah, probably got probably got other you know bigger problems to worry about, especially if you use anything that Facebook makes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, <laughs> well, let's roll into a podcast. So, one of the things that we uh, do, uh, since this is your first time on, uh, we talk about the cars we're driving, and I'm assuming yes. that they're in Greenwich. They have a pretty robust fleet in the New York area. So, uh, yes, you're you're driving media cars on a regular basis. I am. When I'm home, I, I generally have one or two cars. I today, this week, I have an Alfa Romeo Stelvio Quadrifoglio all-wheel drive. Such a sacrifice. <laughs> it's just so much fun. It's so much fun. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's that's. I liked that when I, I actually didn't drive it. Um, I rode in it a mm. while back. I was very impressed with the Stelvio Quadrifoglio. You know, it's I, I I went on the launch a year and change ago now. Uh, oh, that was at Coda, wasn't it? Yes, it was at Coda, which is a great track. I I like that track. It's it's my second favorite. My first one is Laguna Seca. Of course, there's nothing like there's nothing like Laguna Seca, and I I know that track by heart. I just I love that track. Okay, I figured you'd say Lime Rock. No, you know, it's funny. It's crazy because it's it's right in my backyard. Yeah. I have only been on the snow track at Lime Rock. I haven't actually been on Lime Rock. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I know. I've heard Lime Rock described as going very fast down a hallway. It's because it's not as big. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty. It's, it's a pretty short track. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just over a mile long, I think, too. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I would love to see more women taking track lessons, more women just taking, I've actually never taken like the Porsche driving school. And it's something, you know, it's something that you don't think about as being necessary to everyday life. But I got to tell you, like, I learned a lot when we did this, uh, General Motors had an event last year um, with uh, a bunch of Chevys and it was the Equinox and we did, the, they had a Traverse and we got to just, just go for like four hours driving around in the snow and you really, you know, you learn a lot in that relatively safe environment of being able to anticipate what your vehicle may do as it slides, you know, as you understeer and oversteer and you kind of catch yourself. And, and these are things that 
you know, I, I would much rather have people learn in a, in a, a safe, you know, closed course than on Route 95. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely better if you can, you know, if you have a chance to practice those maneuvers, you know, somewhere where there other where there aren't other vehicles around, you know, and get used to, you know, things like counter steering. Uh, right. I, I was I was fortunate, you know, early in my engineering career, the company I worked for at the time, Kelsey Hayes, um, back in about 1992, sent all of its engineering staff uh, that was working on things like ABS and traction control out to Arizona to take the Bob Bondurant driving school. Oh, great. And so we did the the four day course there and, you know, it was amazing. And then, you know, over the course of my engineering career, I spent a lot of time driving around on frozen lakes, uh, yes. you know, <laughs> which, you know, when you're, when you're developing ABS and traction control and stability control, you know, you do these things in the wintertime. Right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, then when, when my kids got old enough, you know, when they were learning to drive, you know, I took them out, you know, into an empty parking lot. And, you know, I, I did, you know, I, I replicated, you know, the skid, you know, giving them the opportunity to, uh, you know, to learn skid control, you know, by, you know, while I was sitting in the left-hand seat, you know, manipulating right. the uh, the parking brake lever and, yeah. and let them figure out how to counter steer. That's awesome. I used to do that to my brother. <laughs> we were both in high school. I mean, he'd be driving the, uh, the escort. <laughs> I'd yeah. yank the Uber. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so you know, tell tell us more about your thoughts about the the, quad, the Stelvio. So, one of the things I love about the Stelvio is it's just it's visually a beautiful car. It has gorgeous proportions. You know, you you want to have that sort of all that that rear wheel drive proportion. Those that high belt line, the the low greenhouse. You know, the visibility is not great out the back. And I've been I've I've generally don't have an issue with visibility, but I can see where this could be a little compromised for some people. But otherwise, it's just it's just a beautiful vehicle. And you sit in it and you kind of get wrapped around in it because of that high belt line. There's a great sense of security and kind of like this beautiful, you know, suede blanket that's wrapped around. I love the steering wheel it it has this it's it's small and concise and you have this feeling that you are that you are driving a a little rocket ship and it kind of reminds me of like those little like the go-karts like the little f1 carts with the little tiny steering wheel it's it's not the corporate fca wheel (laughs) no 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 (laughs) <laughs> and even, I just, well, even even the stop start button, the engine stop start button is um, on the steering wheel. It's not yeah, on the dashboard. It's on the left side. Now, the only challenge with that is if you park on a curve, if you know, if you turn the wheel like in San Francisco or something or just on a hill, it's out of it's it's then not in the right position. So it's a little bit weird in that regard. So you do have to kind of get used to that. Uh, but it is very, very much like a little race car. And and that's just a lot of fun. It's really fast. It's got a 2.9 liter engines, 505 horsepower, twin turbo V6, uh, eight speed transmission. Glorious. It does. It is it and it, and the exhaust note is to die for. I mean, 
I would never deliberately exceed the speed limit, but every once in a while I look down <laughs> and I think it's a six, but it's actually more like an eight. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's really, it just zips around. The other thing I like is, you know, especially here in Southern Connecticut, I'm, I'm just outside of New York City and all you see are black Range Rovers. And I love Range Rover. I love the brand. The vehicles are great. But every once in a while, you just want to be in something a little bit different. And, you know, Alpha certainly does that. I uh, and, and the Stelvio gives that, you know, a lot of utility, but in a super fun pack. So here's a question, um, and it's a little bit region specific, but uh, do you have a particular uh, favorite driving route in that area? Because I'm trying to think like, okay, so you've got 95, you've got 84 that comes down. You could go up 15 or... Yeah, so the Merritt Parkway, oh, the, the Merritt Parkway, yeah. yeah, Merritt Parkway, Hutchinson River uh, the Parkway, Hutch, yeah, the Hutch, right? Uh, Some of those are pretty good driving. There's um, in and around Greenwich, Stamford, Westport, Wilton, all that kind of area. Mm. It's pretty good driving. Um, there's, you know, some of the roads are very narrow very small. Uh, but I think the parkway is probably the best place to open it up a little bit Yeah, and, and to get some, to get some movement. Yeah. Wilton gets a little bit more rural if I remember. So that's, uh, it does. It does get a little bit more rural. Um, actually parts of Greenwich are incredibly rural. I mean, you can, Greenwich is big. It's, it's, it covers 60 square miles. So, you can, you know, the northern um, or the back country, as they call the it. Back country. That's where, <laughs> that's where all the Manhattanites are buying up the uh, states because it's really it's eastern New York. It is exactly yes. So, so roads in the back country can get uh, they can get some 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 nice curves going on. All right. Well, next time I'm down there, I'll have to see. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and the Stelvio just um it goes the one that I've got which has um the all-wheel drive package and oh it's got the um the tri coat for $2300. <laughs> this one is 85,890. Uh which I have to say, you know, obviously it's a lot of money, but it's a lot less than the Maserati Levante which is I uh, you know somewhat similar. Uh, and I just think it's it's just all sorts of fun. It does have the driver assist, um, adaptive cruise control, forward collision warning, all that. That's only about fifteen hundred bucks. Uh, Apple CarPlay, um, Android Auto. I mean, it's 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 pretty well equipped, and um, and again, it's got the heated steering wheel, which is toasty, especially you know on days like this. So overall, I just I think it's just an absolutely fantastic vehicle. Tons of fun to drive. Yeah, I, I drove the um, the two liter Stelvio uh, just about a year ago, just before the Chicago show last year. Mm-hmm. I had one, and even that one, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, and you know, it's it's on the same platform as the uh, the Julia sedan. Right. Uh, it just sits a little bit higher, and you know, because it's a, a crossover, you know, you've got that the rear hatch. You know, so it's it's basically like having a Stelvio wagon that's that's a little bit taller. It is. It is. And, you know, I was out, um, I, I wrote a story for Forbes on, uh, on the Ferrari, uh, 250 GTO that was sold uh, that 
was went to auction back in August. So when I went to the garage with the owner, uh, who now sold it, Greg Witten from Microsoft, he has a Stelvi, uh, he has a, a Julia. At the time, he had a Julia, and he actually told me when I saw him at CES that he traded in and got the Quadrifolio, the the Stelvio Quadrifolio, because he needed a little bit more room, but. Uh, one of our friends, also another tech guy, also has a Julia. And then the guy, a guy that takes care of another tech billionaire's stable of vehicles, <laughs> he pulled up in a, in the Julia as well. And so, and they didn't even know that they had all bought them. So, and so there's this sense of you know it's kind of like the the runabout car uh, is is of the of the tech billionaire set is clearly the Julia. Some <laughs> and it, some runabout car is it because the fond memories of what Alpha used to be, like, or or is it just? I think it's, it's just fun to drive. Yeah, I really I'll, do. I I'll think it's just that, it's yeah. fun to drive. You know, the seats kind of again, it, it's it's sort of reminiscent. You know, it's when when you don't want to take your Ferrari out, you know, this gives you that same kind of fun feel. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it it does have that same kind of Italian feel. There's certainly a lot of Ferrari DNA in it. Ferrari, you know, Ferrari worked with Alfa Romeo to develop that twin turbo V6 that's in there. Yeah. And, you know, so it's got that kind of feel to it. And it, I've driven the, the Julia, the Julia Quadrifoglio uh, a mm -hmm. couple of times and, and I drove the, uh, <laughs> drove the, uh, the Stelvio Quadrifoglio at, uh, at Road America last spring during the Mama Spring Rally. Oh, that's fun. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was phenomenal there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, I think, you know, if you live in a place like Michigan or Connecticut, you know, and, you know, someplace where there's winters, you know, and you want to be able to drive it year round, I think, you know, the Stelvio definitely has an advantage with that, you know, bit of extra ground clearance because last year, you know, when I got back from the Chicago Auto Show, we had been hit by a, a snowstorm, you know, while I was on my way back and, you know, I, there was supposed to have been uh, a, a two-liter Julia delivered to my house while I was gone. Uh, it turns out they brought the Quadrifoglio back again, <laughs> and you know, it has about three inches of ground clearance. And when you when you have eight inches of snow, that's just that's just not a good combination. <laughs> that's sub-op. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. It's yeah, sure. <laughs> so you were also driving the um, the MX-5 Miata. No, it's the, 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 I've got the CX-5. Oh, CX-5, I'm sorry. Oh. I looked quickly. The CX-5, which, um, to be very truthful, I haven't, I haven't driven it yet. So it got dropped off at the same time. There was a little bit of a double booking issue. And um, I got tied up at the dentist yesterday and not in a good way. Uh, and so I haven't had a chance to drive it yet. And like Sam, I barely left the house. Yeah. So tomorrow, well, this weekend, I'll be taking out the Mazda. Yeah, we can. We can t uh, I've actually got a CX-5 in the driveway right now as well. Um, and so why don't, we, why don't we come back to that next week? Do you yeah. have the turbo, the new 2.5-liter turbo? I don't think so. I haven't okay. even pulled out the Mulroney. I'm sorry. I've been really right. bad. Well, we, you know we, what else? What else I just had too was the Jeep Wrangler, the new one. Have you had that yet? Yes. I've, yeah. What What do you think of it? I was stunned and delighted. Absolutely. My brother has the has a 2015 that I at, at five feet tall. I can barely get in and out of that thing, and it just. It's just not an enjoyable vehicle to be in, in my opinion. This new one, I had the unlimited Sahara 4x4. I absolutely loved that thing. I felt like a total badass in it and that I could just go conquer the world. 
and it was super comfortable. It was kind of loud on the highway for sure because I had the cloth roof. But otherwise, I just absolutely loved it. I, I was delighted with it. It was so much fun. Did you have the, the two liter or the V6? Uh, let me look at it. I had the two liter um, inline four. See, okay. I haven't driven that one yet. I, I do think they've, they've refined the Wrangler quite a bit, even though it's still a Wrangler. Uh, so I was impressed with that, but I, I, I wish I could get my hands on a force. And I'm sure there's going to be one coming my way soon. Uh, Cause I, I think that that's gotta be a big difference. It, it really was. I mean, I was absolutely amazed. Now granted it's $53,000. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking how expensive Wranglers have it gotten. It did not. It didn't have heated seats. It didn't have heated seats. What? I know. I know. We were shocked. I, I've got my nephew with me. And I was like, Jake, I said, you have to read through this. Am I missing something? We couldn't find them anywhere. And I was like, wait a minute. How does this not have heated seats? It didn't have heated seats. That should have everything. $53,000. Yeah, that should have everything for $53,000. I st so I still go back to I was um, complaining on Twitter about this uh, <laughs> the other day. So the Wrangler has become this kind of like outdoorsy Camry, right? They're just everywhere. And yes. they sell to people who just use them to commute, which is it's fine. You can you can buy what you choose, but it's it's just such a it's it's a commitment to live with every day and I, as much as I love the Wrangler, I get so tired of it after a week with it. You know, it's, it's you know, stiff need and just. So that's eh. the difference is that, Dan, that was that was my feeling on it. That was my initial thought was, all right, you know, this will be fine for a couple of days. I actually loved it. And, huh. and my I know my sister-in-law used to have one years and years ago. As I said, my brother has had two now back to back. And this one was so refined. It was, I mean, it was shocking <laughs> in its livability. Like, cause I, cause I do the same thing. I look and I'm like, really? Like, and, and Wrangler, you know, the great thing about Jeep is it's the brand of bus boys and billionaires. It's <laughs> right. You can yeah. see it in everybody. If you start Everybody's off as a billionaire, a Jeep will make you into a bus boy. <laughs> 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 How do you how do you make a small fortune in a Jeep? <laughs> but you know, Start everyone with a buys large one. one. It's a, it's such <laughs> yeah. an accessible brand. So I was just I was absolutely delighted by the Wrangler. Absolutely delighted. I couldn't believe it. All right. Yeah, I mean, I I found it the current one vastly more vastly superior to the last generation one, but it's still not a vehicle that I would ever want to own. Well, I don't know. I mean, I still think, you know, what I liked about it was, first of all, certainly that ground clearance, that sense of, you know, if it snows, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. you can get to wherever yeah, you, you don't you don't go. you don't care about weather in that thing. You don't care about weather in that thing. And, Except you know, I'm cold with the lack of heated seats. But yeah. th that yeah. was sub up for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I remember as a kid, I my my brother and I were coming home. Um, we were actually coming home from church from a youth group meeting one night. And this girl had slid off the side of the road and we got out to help her, although we couldn't really help her, but at least we could be there. And I remember this guy pulling up in this totally tricked out Jeep Wrangler. And he said, uh, he said, oh, no, I'm sorry. He, he pulled up in a 911 and he said, hold on. I've got a Jeep Wrangler with a winch at home. I'll be right back. <laughs> of course, and he this, pulled up in a 911. <laughs> right. And this total superhero <sighs> comes back. And my brother and I looked at each other. You know, we were like, that's the perfect garage. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> kidding. 
Jeez. I was because I was gonna say, Sam, like when you get that hunting lodge up on the UP, you might want a Wrangler. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, or a yeah. wagon. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 that's, that's one thing, you know, when I, when I saw the, uh, the new Jeep, when they, the one that I had last summer was the hardtop four door uh-huh. and actually from behind in particular, you know, I, I don't know if you've, if you've looked at the, spent much time looking at the hardtop uh, version, Rebecca, but from behind, it looks so much like a G wagon now. It does. Especially no, this like one did silver. Too. Yeah. This- the, a silver one looks just like a G wagon from behind now. That, you know what? My my nephew said the same thing. He said this looks just like a G wagon, and and I agree with him. It does. Uh, I mean, it's got again. It has this, yeah. It doesn't cost nearly as much, but it's got these great proportions to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big square, and there's just I love the improvements that they've done with it. There's such great detail in the lights. You know, it's just they've just paid. They've paid. A lot of they paid a lot of respect to the brand, and and one of the things that I've been looking at the market is who is a good steward of their brand, and I think that Mike Manley and the people at at FCA have been really really good stewards of the Jeep brand. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they have to be. I mean, that's. That's, that's the cash that's, cow. Right. That's the goose. <laughs> and especially well, the Wrangler. Although the Wrangler's like, it's expensive because they think it's expensive to build as well. Yeah. But, but even, even the rest of the Jeep lineup, you know, even things like, you know, vehicles like the Renegade and the Compass, you know, especially the current generation Compass. Yes. You know, have, they've, they've really gotten so much better, you know, and, they, you know, the, the first generation compass, you know, Ugh. was, was a terrible vehicle. I mean, terrible. there's just no way around. It, it was awful, yes. but the second generation and, you know, the, the current Cherokee and the Renegade, you know, those are all vehicles that really, you know, they deserve to carry the Jeep name, you know, especially, you know, when you get the Trailhawk versions, I mean, those are all legitimately capable off-road vehicles yeah. and they're, you know, they're, they deserve to be called Jeeps. Well, and, and my experience with actually sort of Jeep shopping uh, is that they're smart enough to make those trail-rated versions of everything that they make, but they also know how to package them so that the people who want the brand and the, the perceived all-weather capability and ruggedness and whatever else Jeep says, because it's Jeep, um, they package it in such a way that you can get into it and you can get a reasonably you know amenable vehicle. You know, it's got the stuff that you, the features that you want, it's not necessarily as hardcore because not everybody's going to want or appreciate the, the Trailhawk, but they're going to really, really like the Latitude, you know? And they, they make that actually quite affordable and very, very competitive. And, the, you know, the Compass, I mean, I, I, they did a fantastic job redoing that to the point where I think it encroaches on the Cherokee. Uh, they're, they're sort of like stacked right up on each other. Um, but you look at the Jeep lineup now versus, I don't know, three or four years ago, yeah, they've been very good stewards. They've they've done a very careful job with Jeep. Yeah, they have. So I drove when I moved when I the week I started at Kelly Blue Book. I was flying out to Irvine for two weeks, and I rented a Jeep Compass. <laughs> oh, that was the old Compass, right? The old Compass. Oh. It, it it was, was bad. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was just. It was so 
so awful. I, and I think, you know, starting a new job, there's so much going on. You know, I'm, I had only been back in the country a couple of weeks and I just, I, I couldn't get myself and like, I couldn't organize myself enough to go to Long Beach airport to get something else. <laughs> But it was close to that. It was so horrible. I dreaded driving that thing. But the new compass, I just had that about a month ago or so. And that, again, was just it was just terrific. Yeah, it, it was it was it was really great. Again, like a, a cute, fun, relatively inexpensive. I think mine was in the thir- low 30s um, and just and just great. We actually got a little snow the week that I had it. And so I took it to the beach just to get some, you know, prettier pictures of it and such. But again, it's that nice sense of, you know, this is a Jeep. It's, it's going to handle pretty well. Of course, it's just all wheel drive, but you still have that sense of confidence that, you know, it's, it's still a Jeep and, and it still looks like it's fun and, and fun to drive. And, and again, they've just been, they've done a fantastic job with it, with the brand. I agree. Uh, totally agree. Cool. All right. Well, we're in agreement. <laughs> um, and you win a prize for driving the sort of like the, the nicest, uh, most pricey stuff. Because, I mean, you got to keep up appearances in Greenwich, too. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, Sam, you've been in the Hyundai Santa Fe. Yeah, um, I, I spent a week with the Santa Fe uh, after I got back from uh, Utah last week. And, uh, you know, the, the last generation Santa Fe, I was actually surprisingly underwhelmed by um you know i i, I had driven the uh the, the santa fe sport uh last time around for uh, about about two years ago and you know it did not really impress me very much this one though you know was is such an enormous step forward for hyundai um you know and what you know what hyundai's done this time around with the santa fe they actually split it up again you know the, the, when they uh, like uh, 10 years ago, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, you know, they had the two row Santa Fe as a compact uh, crossover. And then when they did their first three row crossover, they called it the, they, they brought it out as the Veracruz. And that one didn't sell that well for some, for a variety of reasons. But then, you know, when they redesigned those, they put both the Veracruz and the Santa Fe on the same uh, platform. And they had, they, they made, um, or the replacement for the Veracruz. They made the th- a three row and called that the Santa Fe. And then right. the two row was the Santa Fe sport. So that was confusing. Now, yeah. So now they're back to the two row being this, just the Santa Fe and they've just launched the new Palisade as their new big three row crossover. Well, but they've also got the three row Santa Fe, right? Which is the Santa Fe XL. Uh, not in North America. Oh, I don't think the, they're still selling the old, uh, Santa Fe as the XL for a t- for the time for the time being, but that's going to go away. I think later this year. Um, so okay, there's there's yeah, no, no that's what I see. Yeah, there's yes. no there's no three row direct three row version of the Santa Fe, but you know the the design of this thing you know has changed pretty dramatically. You know, and it's kind of a a step in a in a new direction for Hyundai. Um, you know, it it's you know it it's a, it actually when you look at it from a distance, it actually looks quite a bit larger than it actually is, uh, because it's, it's much more, it, it's much boxier and kind of chunkier looking than it, than the last generation one. But when you get up close to it, you realize it's actually not that big. You know, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird visual, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, optical illusion, optical, op- optical illusion. Yes. That's, thank you. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, so it, you know, I, I think it actually looks really good. 
uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's got, it's got kind of bolder styling than the last one did. You know, they've, they've adopted some stuff, uh, some elements from the Kona, you know, so you have those slim horizontal lights at the top corner, top of the corners, and then the bigger, uh, headlights down below, um, you know, this new version of the, the Hyundai grill, uh, you know, that they've been doing for the last couple of years, the Chrome strip that goes all the way across, uh, that ties everything together. So I think it's, it's a good looking vehicle, you know, inside it's got a, you know, it's got, you know, a, a surprisingly premium feel to it. I mean, this, you know, this one almost felt like something that, you know, would fit in quite nicely, you know, as an entry level Genesis crossover, um, you know, and the overall, you know, I thought it drove really well. Um, you know, it, it's got the two liter turbo in there with about 250 horsepower, Sounded a little bit on the the coarse side. You know, it didn't sound the engine didn't sound quite as refined as as uh, you know, kind of what the rest of the vehicle, you know, uh, kind of the 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 perception the rest of the vehicle gave you. But overall, I th- you know, I thought it was really good to drive, and you know, it got pretty decent fuel economy. It got like twenty four miles per gallon. What did you have for the engine? The two liter turbo, yeah. which I think is the only engine in there right now. Or there may be they may have a two four as well, the the naturally aspirated two four. But yeah, and this one you know it was it was really well equipped. You know, it had all the driver assist features, the adaptive cruise and lane keeping and everything else. Um, you know, and this this was the loaded one. You know, it was the ultimate, uh, and it was just shy of forty thousand dollars. That's a lot more than a. It has a lot more features than a Jeep for fifty three. That's true, but you, but you can't take the doors off of this one or, or the top off. You can, and and Once. you certainly you certainly I certainly think you don't want to try taking this one down the Rubicon Trail. I mean, it was fine in the snow, uh, but you know you you don't want to go crawling over boulders in this thing. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I mean, it's a good family SUV, right? And that's what yeah. uh, that's what they've been making for a while, and. Um, Tech-wise, I'm assuming it had the, the typical mix of uh, good, easy-to-use infotainment. Yeah, you know, it's it's got the, the same interface that you'll find on any other uh, Hyundai or Kia model built in, the, like, the last three or four years, you know, with support for Android Auto and CarPlay. Uh, and even the, you know, even the stock, you know, uh, OEM infotainment system, you know, is, is pretty easy to use. Uh, everything's pretty straightforward. You know, it has nav. Um, you know, so every, everything that you would expect is there, including heated seats and a heated steering wheel. But I mean, which, which you can't get in a $53,000 Wrangler. This is true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, all right. Let me, did we lose Rebecca or is she just listening intently? I'm listening intently. Oh, she's listening intently. (laughs) Have you driven the Santa Fe, Rebecca? You know, I was thinking about it. I don't believe I have. Uh, I was trying to think back on my vehicles. I just had the, did I have the Kona? You know, I don't think so. I've got to look back. I don't think I've been in Hyundais in a little while. You know, they kind of go in waves. Yeah. Um, I do like that the Kona sort of set the design direction for Hyundai's newer range of SUVs. You know, there's the, some of those Kona elements in this new um, Santa Fe. Yeah. Right. But, I, it, but it's also a little more grown up looking. It's not quite as, you know, kind of funky as the as the Kona is. 
I did recently drive. Well, I shouldn't say recently. I I drove the uh, the Genesis G70 over in Korea, hmm. and that was really really good, really good. Um, the, the sedan or the the sedan. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The sedan. I I I've got to look because I what what is the um what's the Kia version of the of the Hyundai Kona? So. Um. There isn't one directly right now. You know, they've got they've got the soul, uh, you know, they kind of yeah, brand as a crossover. So, you know, uh, and I think it's been, actually sharing the Kona platform. Right. It must have been the Kona that I had. I have to look back and see because I, I only had it for a few days. Um, but, you know, overall, I just Kia and Hyundai have done a, an incredible job of upping their game. And. And putting out really, really good product that and, and, you know, yes, their prices have gone up a little bit. But, you know, overall, I think they've just done a fantastic job. I uh, just continuously getting better and but keeping their keeping their Koreanness, if you will, you know, and, and again, being good stewards of, of their brand and what they do really well. Yeah. You know, and. You know, while the prices have crept up, you know, compared to their competition, you know, in the same segments, they're, you know, they're not more expensive. You know, they're they're comparable. You know, so there's still a really good value, and you, you know, at any given price point, you get a lot for, you know, for what you're paying. Um, you know, and I think, you know, as you said, you know, they've, they've been good stewards of the brand, you know, they, um, you know, the last couple of years, they've struggled a bit uh, on the sales side because they, they were pretty sedan heavy in their lineups, right. you know, and they're, yes. they're, they're getting some fresh crossovers in there now and some additional stuff like the Kona, which is doing really well. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to help them going forward with the Kona, the, the, the new Santa Fe, and then the Palisade coming, uh, over the next few months. Uh, I think I think they'll be in pretty good shape going forward. Yeah, that Palisade, it really is gorgeous. I, I was I had lunch. Uh, was it last? I think Friday uh, with friends of mine who work for Genesis, actually. But I was at the Hyundai World uh, U.S. headquarters and there was a Palisades there in the parking lot. And, you know, when we see a lot of times we see these vehicles you know, like in, in a showroom or in, in a, in, at an auto show or something, but it's different to see it out on the road. And that thing had some great presence, beautiful proportions. Uh, as you mentioned, like the, you know, the, the narrow headlamps, it just, it looked really good. It, it was definitely a head turner. I, uh, and, and to see it in the parking lot, you know, it just, it, it stands really tall. It definitely has a presence about it that the Santa Fe just doesn't. So I'm excited to see how Palisade is received. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that that's one thing that Hyundai and Kia are both very good at is, um, and I've, I've said this before, you know, their design team, they didn't skimp on design. They attracted a lot of, a lot of guys from, you know, the, the premium German brands. Um, and now they've, they've got the driving dynamics to go with it now that they, they grabbed, uh, was it Albert Bierman? Uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah. So they've really aggressively delivered cars that drive like a million bucks and cost, uh, a lot less than that, you know, yeah. <laughs> a very high value thing. Uh, and they, so yeah. they, they look really, really good too. They're, they're unique. They stand out. Um, and they're, they're sort of finding their, I don't even know if it's the second win, but it's just like, they're, they're really finding their design footing where, 
they don't look derivative of anything else on the road now. And, and that was always the thing is they, you know, especially even the, the last Santa Fe, for example, it looked good, but it, it didn't really look distinctive. Now it's right. It's much more distinctive now. And that's right. happening across the lineup. I think that they're one of their challenges is just people cons- getting on the consideration list. You know, that's always an issue for them. People think of it as a bargain brand and it's really not. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't deserve that nomenclature anymore. It is, it's a legitimate brand that you really should think about. I think it's, you know, like we just talked about with the Santa Fe XL, Santa Fe, Santa Fe Sport, the Veracruz, the Palisade, they're going to have some marketing challenges, getting these names out there, getting people familiar with you know, with what is the Palisade and, and keeping people straight on what's what. Now, I think one advantage they have is that Palisade looks absolutely nothing like the Santa Fe. I mean, it's a, it's really very much it's its own vehicle. So I think that'll be a good thing, but it's a lot of money to try and, you know, and launch a, a a nameplate uh, and, and getting people, to think about that nameplate. And so that will be interesting to watch how Palisades, how Palisade does and how it's received in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, and look, I mean, if they, they're still, they're, they're not necessarily a bargain brand. They're still a high value brand. And, you know, I think if they want to put their resources behind establishing those nameplates, they're going to be successful at it. And, you know, I mean, nobody makes new names and then throws them away with all the equity uh, better than American brands. So <laughs> if they just stick with it for a little bit longer, they'll they'll do OK. Yes. Um, yeah, that 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 is a problem that Ford has. <laughs> they, all, they all do it. I mean, just the, the yeah. list of names is just r- ridiculous. If you go through for the last, say, 50 years, just stuff yeah, that's come and gone. Um all right. The last thing that uh, you? has been in the garage, I got a uh, 2019 Dodge Charger all-wheel drive, and it's you know shockingly like the 2007 Dodge Charger all-wheel drive. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a very good car. Uh, I'm I'm really I'm impressed with how fresh they can make this car feel. You know, it's a, it's a big sedan. It drives tidy. Uh, it's comfortable. All of the controls are quite easy to figure out the materials ever since they um did the lash up with fca the materials in the interior are great you know uh i think chrysler or or fca uh does some of the best interiors in the business for for the price and you know this car is is no different you know they i think they've redone the dash pad uh for this year or the this particular model package i have uh, has a it almost looks like um you know, like a leather wrapped dash. And then in the charger, there's a lot of dash. Uh, so uh, it, it used to look like this big Rubbermaid thing that was all one piece. And um, they've, they've tried to make it, I think, look a little bit more stylish. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good car. It's very, very stable in the crappy weather we've had. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's one of those cars that's sort of like, it's always going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good recommendation. It's it's hard to argue with it. And it's you know it's a high value car. Um, Penastar or Hemi? Penastar. Okay. Which does is no slouch. I needed to pass three cars <laughs> in a row on the highway tonight, and I just put my foot down, and uh, the the needle was pointing at nine something. 
<laughs> very, it's just like a 300 horsepower engine. It's go yeah, just hey, fine. You know, I, I would I would take one over the the slant six in my my dad's old 73 Dart any day of the week. Ah, uh, so yeah. Um, I remember taking my my friend Jesse when I was in high school. He had a 71 Valiant with a slant six and a broken torsion bar because they all did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we cranked that thing up either to that, either about, that or saggy rear leaf springs, right? Well, it, or both. Um, yeah. We cranked that thing up to about 110 one day. It took a very long time to get there, and it was terrifying. So, <laughs> I'll bet uh, this was not terrifying. This you just put your foot down and you go. Uh, so it, you don't need the Hemi. The Pentastar does just fine, especially with the I think it's the eight-speed auto. It, it's yeah, the eight-speed auto. Yep. Yeah, it's a really good match, and it, you know, all-wheel drive in this platform. It's great in the the charger it's great in the challenger gt like this it's just a good car uh you know it, it may not be everybody's thing but it's it's a good big car so i actually i i love i love the charger because i think it just celebrates american muscle and and too often that's shunned when i think it just should be celebrated you know it's it's that i i love the dodge tagline of domestic not domesticated yeah that's pretty yeah. good <laughs> you know, it's it's such a fantastic celebration of of you know domestically oriented people. Not everyone wants a passport. Not everyone wants you know wants to go explore the world. And that kind of mindset, that domestically oriented mindset, needs to be celebrated more than it is. I agree, and you know, I I, I just wish that they would consider bringing back the Magnum. You know, because oh. I think I think. You know, we're 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 at a time when you know perhaps you know maybe now is the Magnum's time. You know, jack it up, you know, a couple inches, put some you know put some plastic uh, wheel arch extensions on there, call it a crossover, and I think it would be perfect right now. <laughs> no, it was definitely ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know the whole the whole wagon kind of you know conversation is one that's really interesting also because. You know, baby boomers um, and and for background, I do a lot of work looking at generational analysis and trends and and how your growing up experience affects your attitude towards different products and such. And so, you know, for baby boomers, a station wagon was not aspirational. That's you know one of the reasons they moved to SUVs. They aspired to get out of station. They wagon. did exactly. But what's interesting is that, like, you know, when 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 the Buick Regal Tour X first came out, I went on that launch last year, and a, and a friend of mine from California, I, as un undomestically oriented as you can get, uh, he contacted me. He's like, I'm a little because I I can't believe I'm asking you about this, but what did you think of that car? And it was all sorts of fun to drive the the tour the Regal Tour X with the torque vectoring. It it was great off road, you know, not hard off road, but you know, just general. It was a lot of fun. And and I told him, I said, you know, I think it's a great vehicle. And and this is a typical millennial attitude. He's he's in his late thirties and is like, you know. I've, I've all I've grown up with are SUVs. I want something different. And it's that crazy kind of cyclical thing yep. that you don't want what your parents have. Right. And so, you know, the wagon, I, I there is opportunity for well-placed, you know, low volume wagons. I think 
going to really make a statement, uh, especially in what I call the trophy generation, the the millennials that are <laughs> older, that are, the trophies. I know. Well, and I say that with love. <laughs> it's all the boomers fault, you know, just as much as the, the boomers are, are sort of the result of the greatest generation. Just yes. Conspicuously consuming everything in sight. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that there's definitely, I've been very curious about the, uh, the tastes and desires of folks that are a little younger than me, you know, in their, in their thirties and twenties. Yeah. Um, cause they, they are different and there is that reaction against the, the SUV. Uh, and part of it is the, the living arrangements are different, uh, where they either, you know, if they're, in a more urban environment or even, you know, with the sprawl that we have, you don't have to be directly in the city to still have a tight parking situation where you're renting and it's a multifamily house and there's, there's only so much space in the driveway. Uh, right. So you, you need something small or cheap because if you're going to street park, it's just going to get completely destroyed. So. Right. Uh, well, uh, yeah. And they're probably, it is. And I think it's also important and I don't want to completely derail us. We can, I no, can talk okay. it's all a good night about this. Roll into. <laughs> It's um, it's important also to remember that because of the Great Recession, that you can't block all millennials together. There's not it's it's only the Great Recession, but it's also just technology. So you can't look at at millennials as one generation. They had very different growing up experiences. In some cases, even within the same family, mm-hmm. where you know if you're in your in if you're like mid to late thirties, your parents, you know, pretty much. I mean, they were they were overindulgent baby boomer parents. And, you know, and that's why I called them trophy generations, because they did show up and get a trophy. But people like 30 and younger, like even 18 to 30 that graduated college or you know post recession, they actually saw their baby boomer parents lose everything. And, and, you know, and, and lose their job, lose their houses in some cases and end up in their late fifties and into their sixties with not a single stamp in their passport. Well, so and, uh, I'm, I'm curious about where those, those people fit because like, are they boomers? Are they echo boomers? And, and there's, there's like, you can really stratify, stratify the, the generations, but you know, it's, it's weird. There's this weird sort of group of parents that are not as old as my parents who are early boomers right. and they're in their seventies mm-hmm. and, you know, the early seventies now, um, yeah. but there's these folks that were born after, you know, 1955. And that's sort of like the second wave of the boom, right? Like, or, or where do they right. fit not to get to right? Old. Yeah. So, so the second wave of the boom, their kids now are, are basically 30 and, and younger in some cases. Um, I mean, the birth year, baby boomers typically are 1945 to 1964, and then Gen X is 65 to 77. And then Got after, just into the wire. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then 78 is was traditionally uh, Generation Y. That was what they were first called. And then it kind of evolved into the millennials. But absolutely, your parents have influence on your growing up experience. But again, what what demographers and and sociologists are 
finding is that your kid, your friends and the world around you has, has a lot more influence, especially with the internet. So people in their twenties, I, I call them, I uh, really, this, the social generation, you know, the, so, or the social media generation, yeah. because that is how they communicate with each other. But even, but even what's interesting is even kids 20 and younger have a different relationship with different social media outlets like Snapchat. So uh, Snapchat for people in their, in their mid twenties is a way of intimate conversation between like a boyfriend and girlfriend. And you don't Snapchat with people of the opposite sex. You only Snapchat with your your significant other. Whereas for younger people, like 20 and younger, they Snapchat with everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, they like the filters, the little, like the faces. And- right. All those yeah. goofy little things. And stuff. But so, you know, tech, because technology is moving so quickly and because adoption rates of technology are now measured in months and years, as opposed to years and decades, your relationship with that technology is different just based on it could just be a couple of years difference in your age. So all that kind of translates into how you communicate and how you interact with different vehicles as well. And that's why marketing gets so tricky trying to market these different vehicles, uh, because what appeals to a, a, a 38 year old millennial is not the same as what appeals to a, a 28 year year old millennial. Well, I, Sam, did I hear you trying to? No. In? Okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just absorbing this, you know, and <laughs> the mass pa- 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 pondering the fact that I have, you know, the, the couple of times that I actually tried to figure out Snapchat, it just <laughs> completely befuddled me, you yeah. know, and, <laughs> I, you know, and, and as somebody, you know, who is, you know, an engineer and, you know, generally a pretty techie kind of guy, uh, you know. Every time I tried to open that app, I was completely lost. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. So clearly I was far too old to be. Using yeah. You know what I can't use? I can't use at all is um, Pinterest. It frustrates the hell out of me because it's like you get the pin board. OK, fine. And my wife uses it. So maybe this is a and this is a good sort of place we can actually take the topic because we can we can bring it around to cars. <laughs> um, but like my wife uses it and it's, it's like a pin board. But I'm like, why, why do I have to click off the app to, to see the thing? And I, I like, I understand the idea, but as an app maker or as a, as somebody who works in, in marketing and like direct response marketing, the last thing I ever want to do is give somebody an exit off my site for the thing that they want. No, no, no. You have that in my platform. And you see that with like Facebook, Facebook doesn't let you out. They, they want it all native. Right. uh, So Pinterest, like it confuses me. There's just a paradigm and I cannot make it go. (laughs) (laughs) It just just frustrates me. Uh, But (laughs) you know, uh, what, what do you see as like the divide? Cause we've seen, okay, there was, there were boomers and they had station wagons when they were kids. So they didn't want station wagons. So they graduated to minivans. You know, there was that whole proliferation of minivans when I was a kid. Sure. Um, and then we've moved to SUVs, you know, um, they, the, the Ford Explorer really was the first one that, that kind of kicked that off back in 91. Like, I just remember that it's exploded on the market. Um, and then everybody had one. Right. And, uh, now we've moved to the car-based SUVs, so the crossovers, and they're, they're sort of like getting they don't they're in that place where you know that if everybody who who critiques the cars hates them, you know that's the most popular thing. 
<laughs> and like that's that's what we're seeing. Nobody nobody will really or begrudgingly coming around, right? To saying like, you know, like we're sad that wagons with manual transmissions are going, but you know, these crossovers, like, they're not that bad. And so I wonder if part of that is um there's this dominant group of men who seem to critique all of the cars, and then there's actually women who buy most of the cars <laughs> or drive, you know, <laughs> 50 to 80% of the high dollar purchases in the household. And so, like, are we seeing that, you know, the, 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 um, the, the enthusiast press is catching up to reality where, <laughs> where the people who are actually buying the cars are driving what the cars are? I, Go ahead. Well, that's a multi-part I, question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I stumped everyone. I, I mean, I think, you know, I we certainly. I mean, there there is a there's a, a level of circuitousness, and you know, in 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 every. Uh, this you know the cycle will always kind of go around, but I think. I think that that one of the things that where we are today in. The car market, particularly when it comes to SUVs and crossovers, is that because we have shared platforms now, we can do iterations of these vehicles to suit everybody. And, you know, like with the Honda Passport being built on the exact same platform and with the same wheelbase even as the Honda Pilot, but delivering a very different ownership experience and a very different driving experience, it, it's we're able to do, we're able to almost personalize and customize vehicles. So you can build profitably 40 or 50,000 of something. You know, or thirty thousand of something, because you're actually building a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand of something else, and, and so you're using most of the same parts over and right, over and over again. Right, and you you've got economies of scale, particularly with things that consumers never see. You know, like wire harnesses, and you know all the kind of the underbody stuff. The HMI can be exactly the same. So all these kinds of things, you can get economies of scale. This means that we have the opportunity to both personalize and customize products for very narrow striations within the marketplace. And so then you start to get people that are like, well, you know what? I, they actually do have exactly what I need. And since most people really are pretty practical in their car buying, uh, they, they look and say, you know what? A crossover pretty much checks all the boxes that I need from both an emotional and practical standpoint. So let me, let me throw in my two cents worth here. Um, in, in, in my household over the last, you know, almost 20 years, uh, you know, we've, we've had several cars that have been my wife's primary car. You know, um, when, when we first got married, she was driving a Mercury Sable and, you know, 2000, <laughs> so, well, so am I. <laughs> Um, but in, in 2000, you know, wanted to get a new car and she did not want an SUV or a crossover. And she actually wanted a station wagon. 
you know, our kids were, were still relatively young at the time. You know, they were, you know, under 10 years old. And, you know, so we got a Volkswagen Passat wagon. Mm. And despite all the issues we had with it, you know, in 2009, we turned around and bought another Volkswagen station wagon. So and it's okay if the, win- if the windows don't go up and down every time? Okay. Um, it's just it's it's a yeah, as long as as long as the driver's window would go up and down and the sunroof would open, the rest was okay. okay I'm comfortable. Um, I don't know why you kids yeah. keep complaining. You know, I mean, okay. So so the rear passenger side door won't lock. You know, just Details. don't leave anything Details. valuable in the car. Right. Uh, it just means you leave a sign on the seat that just says rear door won't lock, and then they won't yeah. smash the window. Exactly. <laughs> just open it up. You know, yeah. Don't 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 break the glass. Just open it up. Uh, I love know, my Volkswagen. You know, and, yeah. Well, you know, and and my you know my line my traditional line has been Volkswagens are great cars to drive and terrible cars to own. Yeah. That, you know, I've, fortunately, I think that that has actually you know perhaps changed. Hopefully, changed somewhat yes, because yes, it, it has. They now have a six-year, seventy-two thousand-mile warranty on them. Yeah. Uh, so you know, at least it's not you know, at least for the first six years, you're not going to be paying you know hand over fist for everything. But uh, you know, the thing is, once the you know, once we sold back the diesel wagon to Volkswagen a couple of years ago, you know, my wife, we wanted another station wagon. She did. She still, even in 2017, did not want to get a crossover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she she likes driving cars. She likes car driving dynamics, but liked the utility of a wagon. Sure. And, you know, in the absence of anything, you know, in the price range that we wanted to pay, you know, in the size class that we wanted, you know, we didn't we didn't want to spend, you know, 80 or 90 thousand dollars on a Mercedes E-Class wagon. <laughs> you know, we, we ended up buying a Honda Civic hatchback, you know, because that was the closest thing we could get to a wagon that wasn't a crossover, you know, that wasn't jacked up because she did not want that kind of car. She want she likes driving that car. So maybe she's just an outlier, but, you know, she's an outlier that's married to me. And I like that. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it depends on what. So there's a difference between what they classify the car as or what we classify the car as and what other people see in the car. You know, something like the uh, Honda Accord Crosstour. That's a that's an Accord wagon. It was not yes. s- not really yes. sold as a wagon, but it, it was essentially a wagon. And it's it's great for what for what it is. Um, you know, we we had our, our day calling it ugly and, and whatever, but it was actually pretty good to drive. Um, the BMW uh, 3 Series GT and 5 Series GT. Those are. I mean, I guess they're hatchbacks because they're They're hatches. Yeah, there are wagon versions of those cars. But, um, you know, again, like they're not the full on sort of trucky like uh, faux SUV crossovers, but they do have some increased ride height and and stuff like that. Uh, So, yeah, I guess I guess it really depends on where they're trying to position the vehicle. And I think also, um, you know, like older folks, and and, and I say say this because you're thinking about the, the the boomers who are aging now, right? They're they're in their seventies, so they, they've got stuff like trick knees and bad hips. And um, I remember minivans were popular with like the the, the greatest generation folks that I knew. Yeah, you know? um, for the same reason that they're easy to get having, in and out ha- of having that higher hip point. Yeah, and and it, I'm not saying that to scoff at it. I think that's actually a legitimate. Yeah, uh, no, well, you know, and, and the, the funny thing is, you know, back in the mid 2000s, that was exactly Ford's argument when they did the the 500, the Ford yeah. 500. And you know who bought them? <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much nobody. Uh, well, but, I, I see a lot of them that have been very gingerly used by yeah. f- 
folks. <laughs> but you know that was that was the thing with the 500 is you know they made a taller sedan, you know with and and they 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 talked a lot at the time about that higher you know having that higher hit point, you know more like a crossover, but for people that you know wanted a sedan, and you know they, some some people even bought them. Yeah, <laughs> a few. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so you know we mentioned the, the passport, and you got to drive the passport. Uh, yeah, both Rebecca and yeah, I drove both, it last both week. Both of us did. Okay, so I have seen sort of mixed takes on this. So I I was very interested in the passport when it, it debuted before anybody got to drive it. You know, it looks like a tidier pilot. It, it styling wise, it, it looks good. It fits a very slim niche in the Honda lineup, I think. Because you've got the pilot that covers both two row and three row. It's not too big, not too small. But then you've got the passport that notches in between that and the CRV, which, you know, it is significantly smaller than the pilot, but it's not that much smaller than this passport. Or, or is it? Is, is look, are looks deceiving? It's, it's, it's actually quite a bit smaller than the passport. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the, the passport kind of symbolizes something we're going to see a lot more of over the next year or two. And we're, we've already started seeing it, but we're, we're really going to see a lot more of it over the next couple of years as manufacturers start to come up with these sort of ruggedized crossovers, you know, the ones that are targeted, you know, at people, you know, I mean, in, in Honda's case, you know, they talk, talk about it as being the adventure vehicle, um, you know, something that's a little more off-road oriented and, you know, at least on paper, it is slightly more off-road oriented than a pilot. You know, they, it's, it sits on the same wheelbase as the pilot, you know, I think about 111 inches, but, you know, it's six inches shorter. So they, they basically took length, you know, off the front and rear end. So you have a little bit better departure, departure and approach angles with the thing, uh, you know, but it doesn't have any more ground clearance than a pilot does. Um, and in fact, you know, one oh, no, of the, I think I th it does actually. It has uh, almost an inch more okay. ride height than okay. the pilot. Than the pilot, really? Yeah, that's that's, that's weird. Like, <laughs> well, I, maybe uh, this uh, is why people are having trouble placing it and going like, yeah. who's who's it for? Well, you know, I mean, when you look at it, you know, it's certainly its proportions. You know, even though it's only six inches shorter, you know, its proportions make it. It certainly looks tidier, looks smaller than mm -hmm. a pilot does, because it's also a little bit taller. Right. Uh, it's it's a couple inches taller. The roof line is a little bit higher than a pilot, um, you know. But I think I think probably the single biggest weakness of the passport, and it was actually I found it's you know surprisingly capable off road driving it in Utah, um, you know, on these trails. But the I think the one the one mistake they made was unlike the pilot, you know, the base the base trim level of the pilot is on eighteen inch wheels. On the passports, all four trim levels of the passport ride on 20-inch wheels with, you know, fairly low-profile tires, all-season tires, which, you know, I think if you're going to try and pitch this as your off-road adventure vehicle, and you should have at least one trim level that has smaller wheels with taller sidewalls, you know, and, you know, preferably, you know, even a little bit bigger rolling radius so you have even a little bit more ground clearance, you mm -hmm. know, so it is a little more capable off-road. Yeah, I can What'd see that. Think? No, I, I agree. I, I was, v again, very pleasantly surprised at its off-road capabilities. I mean, we were hitting speeds of 60 miles an hour on some of those dirt roads, and it was handling it really well. There was It was very sure-footed. 
I, a lot of fun to drive. It was, it was quite capable, you know, in, in not significant off-roading. We're not talking Jeep territory, but enough that you could get to your campsite, you know, if you wanted to, or, you know, out. I, I think so as, as a happily single, totally forgot to get married kind of girl, (laughs) I, I actually feel like I'm a good target for this. The last thing I want to be in is a mommy mobile and the pilot is all about family. Mm-hmm. Lara Harrington, or Laura, actually, she pronounces it. Uh, Laura Harrington is is the chief engineer on the pilot, uh, and pilot and the passport, and she's absolutely fabulous. Uh, just, just fabulous looking, fabulous feeling. Just has this amazing, wonderful energy about her, and she put it really well. I thought she said that the passport is more of a personal ownership vehicle, whereas the pilot is more of a family or ownership vehicle. And to me, that really meant it's, it's appealing to singles, to divorced, empty nesters, people that are not, don't have child responsibilities every day. It's got, you know, five passengers so you can bring your mom and dad if they need to go to the doctor or wherever. If you're just or another them out. couple, you know, bring your best friends. Exactly. Friends. So, friends. It's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's not about the family. And and again, you know, I, I talk a lot about marketing because marketing is really important. It, this is about that that person that maybe isn't surrounded by a family. Maybe they do live alone or they, you know, have a significant other. So it's a different, it's a personal ownership vehicle rather than a family oriented vehicle. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, and you know, because you can't get it with a third row, you know, right. if you, if you want a third row, you've got to step up to the pilot, you know, or go to an odyssey or something. So it's, it's a two row only. And, you know, because, um, you know, they've only sliced six inches off of it. Uh, that means you actually do get some extra cargo space in the back. Uh, you know, so it's actually, it's got, you know, a lot of cargo space even behind that second row seat. And then, you know, if you, if you, you know, if it's just you and one other person, you can drop the second row down and, and you can fit all kinds of stuff in there. You can even probably camp in the back there. I think it's probably right, long right. enough <laughs> to camp back there. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think it is it does have a lot of a lot of interesting potential. And, you know, as you talked about earlier, you know, by sh- with all the component sharing that happens, you know, you don't actually have to sell that many of them. Right. You know, and, you know, you, you still benefit from the economies of scale. You know, the, the number of actual unique parts in this thing from a pilot or a ridgeline or an Odyssey is actually, you know, comparatively small. You know, and it's, you know, a, a, the most expensive bits are shared across all of those model lines. So, uh, you know, I think uh, George Peterson and I were talking, you know, and I think figured out based on what the stated capacity of the Honda's Lincoln, Alabama plant where they build this thing is, you know, with the volumes they have for Odyssey or Odyssey Pilot and Ridgeline, they can probably do about 50,000 of these a year. And that's probably a pretty reasonable sales target for, you know, for what they could sell. You could probably do about 50,000 passports a year. Um, yeah, I think that's a great number actually. You know, I, I think especially cause I mean this, you, you look and think, well, what about the CRV? 
I don't, the CRV is something that I would have driven in my thirties. You know, like it's just funny, like just psychologically, like I want to be in something that is more substantial than that. And, and arguably more luxurious, although the, the passport's not particularly luxurious, but I just, I feel like, I feel like they will be able to sell 50,000 of these with no problem. Yeah, and I suspect that, you know, as they go along, you know, in the second and third model years, um, you know, we'll probably see some some other variants. You know, they'll they'll probably tweak the, you know, what equipment is in each one. And, and maybe there will be, you know, maybe the touring version, you know, will get a little more luxurious than it is today. Uh, you know, and maybe we'll, you know, play, you know, the sport will evolve into something that's a little more off-road oriented, you know, that, that has a smaller wheel. Uh, with a bigger tire package and you know maybe some skid plates as an option for yeah, those that I mean, that actually want to use it that way. I'm right. St- I'm still just kind of I'm still confused about okay so if it's not for the family buyer because that's that's it's a two row SUV I guess it's an SUV but the the pilot it's an SUV is yeah I I don't know like. It's not, it, ha- it has significant ground clearance. Yeah, it does, and I'm sure that it's got you know skid plates, and it's rugged enough. But I like no, no skid plates. No skid plates. Oh, no nope. skid plates. Mm. Uh, see, like th- that's weird. Like, okay, so the people who really want these things for off road, they're, they're not gonna, you know, they may they'll pick a Forerunner because a Forerunner is a legit SUV, like off roader. I don't think they're gonna crush up a Passport. So, okay. Uh, I'm still confused about who it's actually going to attract as a customer. And you'll, you'll find 50,000 of those, those people. I, I don't doubt, but I'm just, I just want to see who they are. <laughs> it is, it is, it is that person that wants the idea that they can go off road. They may not actually go off road. Oh, the Wrangler buyer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is. I mean, it really is for you know, I I see it as somebody whose whose version of off road is to go to you know an Airbnb someplace or to a, you know a <laughs> tiny house. Driveway. You yeah, know, the, there is to, it is towing capacity. There is some towing capacity yeah. to 5, it as well. Pounds. Five thousand pounds, right? That's yep. not much. I mean, that's more than just about anybody's going to use. I think, like, but I, and I think that's like that's that's you know, bridge that, line that's a- towing capacity. Right? Yeah, it's, it's original line towing capacity, but you know, I mean, that's enough, you know, to haul a couple of jet skis or you know, a small sure. boat, a snowmobile, right. or something. Yeah, yeah. All right. yeah. And again, it's 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 somebody that doesn't need a pilot, but still wants to do some light off roading. So you know, it comes there. There's there's Honda accessories or the adventure pack with the trailer hitch and harness. You've got an urban package with which has a little bit more rugged, like front and rear spoilers and such. Uh, so they've they're kind of setting it up for that person that is that is has an active lifestyle, um, but doesn't necessarily have a family. Like as I said, like you know, yeah. they want something more rugged than a CRV, but they don't want anything like the Pilot. Right. And, you know, to 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 my complaints about, you know, the, the wheels and tires that they put on here and the lack of skid plates, um, you know, Honda did say that they have worked with their partners at J-Sport uh, and there is a, a dealer. There will be a dealer installed uh, accessory package available that, that addresses a lot of that. Of course, because that's yeah. that's one thing that Honda and Toyota are both brilliant at. And I think they got it from from like BMW and Mercedes. Like, oh, yes, you can have that. It's dealer installed and it's extra. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, all right. So overall, though, it sounds like it's a it's a positive impression yeah. that it left. Yeah, you know, and yes. I think I think I think a a big part of what makes it, despite the the t- the tires that are on it, you know, stock. I think a big part of what makes it as capable as it is off road is the torque vectoring all wheel drive system, which mechanically is the same. It's the same hardware that you'll find on Acuras with super handling all wheel drive. Um, on Hondas, they call it uh, IVMT4, I think, intelligent vehicle tra- or IVTM4, something like that. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, you know it's it's calibrated differently. It, you know it's controlled a little bit differently to make it more um, you know off road capable uh, as opposed to the more performance oriented setup that's on the Acuras. But it's the same hardware that works really really well, and you know it it can adjust the torque front to rear and side to side, you know, and send it where it needs to be. And you know even even on some pretty slick surfaces that we drove on, you know it. It's it put the power down where it needed it to be and, you know, kept it surprisingly stable. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about the process to change it from the different modes. It has like sand. It was sand, snow, mud and normal and normal. And you it it felt clumsy. Like I, I would rather much I'd much rather have a knob. Uh, that you can just go from one to the other. Uh, that was that was, I think, the only thing that I I didn't love about it was, and maybe you don't you know you don't go from different. We we happened to be going because of where we were and because of the weather. We were literally going from snow to mud to sand, uh, and you don't do that very often. But I still. You know, like even in the in the compass that I had a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier, I it was originally in two wheel drive. I was able to throw it very easily into four wheel drive, um, and then I could have I could have gotten even more aggressive. But it was right there. It was very intuitive and it was very easy to do. In the passport, it required going into the menu, selecting it. You know, it it was you could always tell when we were we were in a lead follow formation. You could always tell the person that was changing the mode because there was a hesitation there. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I I wish but once that... you switched it it worked it worked well though. I'm sorry? I so said once you once you switched it it worked well. I mean, you know, it did. it's just a push button. You you just have to push, you know, and, and wait a second for it to, to change modes. Uh, you know, and toggle through the modes. Right. Um but yeah, you're right. I, I agree. I think, you know, a rotary controller, you know, would probably be preferable there. Yeah, I would have I would have preferred that personally. All right. Well, I mean, once we start to get them out in the fleet, I'll be able to give my completely unvarnished opinion about it. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, I really do think, though, that there there is room. You know, Honda also mentioned that they were losing about thirty five thousand customers because they did not have this type of vehicle, which I thought was really interesting that that they didn't have a, a two row capable all-wheel drive vehicle. Apparently, the CRV does not suffice. Uh, so, you know, their competitive intelligence tells them that, that they are losing. They're losing customers because they don't have this vehicle. So, it'll be very interesting to see if they're able to keep customers in the brand. Yeah, well, and I, I think that that's it's a good play for them, especially because they they know how to do the platform sharing uh, pretty well. So, uh, you know, if even if if they have designed this program to work at 35,000 units and they sell 50, they're going to be doing fine. 
So yes, exactly. And just I, I don't think we talked about price at all. So the sport uh, is just under thirty two thousand, which is the base, and then you add two thousand for all wheel drive. Um, the the bulk of it will be the the EXL, which goes yeah. for thirty six thousand. The touring at thirty nine thousand, and then the elite, which comes with four wheel drive, is just under forty four thousand. So. You know, it's it, the average vehicles in that thirty-five thousand dollars range. That's so a little bit more than that, but um, but you know, I think it's still it's it's still a Honda. You're still getting great reliability. You're getting the Honda Sensing. I think those are really well-equipped vehicles for that price point. Yeah, and the like <clears throat> like most new Hondas now, the Sensing package is standard equipment, so right. you don't have you don't have to pay extra for that, which is great. Yeah. All right. Did we want to talk about any uh, questions, or have we? Uh, let's, let me just quickly address, um, Howard Katz's question. Okay. Um, he, uh, he actually sent me an email the other day. Um, they, you know, he, he had seen, uh, some stuff on the new BMW X5 X drive 45 E I performance. Um, and, and BMW clearly has not given up on their ridiculous nomenclature. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the, so this is the new X5 plug-in hybrid basically. And uh, they, you know, they haven't got the, you know, all the EPA uh, figures uh, yet for this thing. And they, they haven't given a lot of detail on things like battery size and so on. But, um, you know, in the, the press release for this thing, you know, talked about uh, this thing uh, getting 2.1 liters per 100 kilometers fuel efficiency, which is about 112 miles per gallon. Um and the uh, the CO2 figure is like 49 grams per kilometer. Uh, it's got a, a 69 liter fuel tank, and um, he was trying to Howard was trying to figure out the the range of this thing, and based just on those numbers, you know, he worked out that you know this thing could potentially theoretically have a range of 2,047 miles on a single fuel single tank of fuel and a fully charged battery, which actually is. Um, Almost certainly not accurate, um, and so I just I just wanted to you know, chat talk briefly about kind of how they how they work these things out. You know that two point one liters per hundred kilometers that that one hundred twelve miles per gallon is actually probably a, the combined fuel economy uh, figure um, based on some percentage you know of a full charge of the battery, which I think uh, they haven't really said specifically, but it, it sounds like it's about a a 30 mile electric range on this thing. So it's probably about a 16 or 18 kilowatt hour battery. Um, and then, you know, so it, it's, it's based probably on about a 50 or so mile, um, you know, driving cycle, you know, getting that 112 miles per gallon. So 30 miles with no gas just on the battery and then the rest on, you know, on the fuel. And so, um, real, you know, and what they do with these things, and this is a this is a problem that goes back to when GM launched the original Volt back in 2010. You know, they spent a long time going back and forth with EPA, you know, trying to figure out, okay, so how are we gonna how are we gonna la label this thing? And you know, so it was it was a long time issue with plug-in hybrids trying to figure out what you know when we calculate the fuel economy of these things. You know, how are we going to do it? And, you know, EPA ended up doing a bunch of studies and looking at, you know, how how people actually drive, you know, how far they drive and so on. And then based on the, the range, you know, they they estimated that 
in general, you know, in a plug-in hybrid, people are going to do about roughly two-thirds of their miles um, on electricity, you know, and the rest on gas. And then so, it, you know, there, there's this complicated formula, but that's basically how it works out. So, you know, it's kind of a, a weighted average, two-thirds electric and, and one-third um, gas, you know, for uh, for a bat for a plug-in hybrid with this kind of range. If you, if it's a, got a smaller battery like the previous Gen X5, which only had about 14 miles of range, um, you know, then that percentage on electricity is going to be a lot smaller, and you're going to use more gas, and you know, so the that combined figure is going to be a lot different. But realistically, the the driving range on this thing for one tank of gas and a full charge of the battery is probably going to be somewhere between five and six hundred miles, not two thousand miles. <laughs> That's a I'm lot glad of you addressed though. Six hundred yeah. miles feels like two thousand if you do it in one shot. That's depends how much coffee you're drinking. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah, like honestly, realistically, you have to stop like every 200, 250. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's kind of why, you know, for EVs, you know, um, you know, kind of that two, two between two and three hundred mile range, you know, for most EVs is probably going to be sufficient for everybody as long as you, you know, for for road trips, as long as you, you know, have access to some reasonably fast charging, you know, and. As we get into 150 kilowatt hour charging stations and and 350 when the Porsche Taycan comes out, you're going to be able to charge up, you know, in 15 minutes or less, uh, you know, get mostly a full charge in that time frame. Which is, you know, by the time you, you know, go to the bathroom and get another cup of coffee, you know, your battery's full again. Yeah, the the Audi e-tron's about 25 minutes for an 80 percent charge. Yeah, and that's that's 150 kilowatts, I think. Yes, um, exactly. And, yeah, and I that, drove that. I drove that in Abu Dhabi. Oh, did you? Yes. What What did you think of it? Well, we can talk about it in the next show if you want to, but okay. it, it, yeah. it, I loved it. Okay. I loved it. Yeah, let's let's come back to that one. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's a good. That's a good ending point then. So this has been uh, Wheel Bearings 95. Um, so Rebecca, thanks for joining us and, and sticking it out uh, into the late evening. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll we'll have to play around with um, recording times just so that we're we're not not killing you uh, going past everybody's <laughs> bedtime. Um, but yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on the show and and uh, sort of bringing a different perspective. Uh, I, I think uh, as the the conversation shows, it's a it's a bunch of expertise that that neither Sam nor I possess, and it, I think <laughs> it, it actually makes things uh, you know an interesting balance to um, just our our uh, Waldorf and Statler. Uh, from the balcony of the Muppet Show, uh, yelling. So, uh, hopefully, well, thank we'll, you for uh, having me on. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Excellent. Uh, well, right. yeah, come back next time, and uh, you as well, listeners. Uh, in the meantime, hit us up and, and let us know how we're doing, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.